the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab episode number 626 for Sunday, October 9th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. The show where you send in tips, questions, cool stuff found, all kinds of fun things for us to learn. And that's the goal for all of us to learn at least four new things each and every time we get together here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in rather wet, we need the water, uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing today, John F. Braun? Good. 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 As I mentioned, it's a... Well, I think it's wet and dreary up where you are as well. Yeah, it's uh, the same hey. New England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that, that you know, we, we've we had, it, it's fall, right? So we get like nice cool weather and then it gets warm again and then it, it we get the rain and, you know, it's it's how it works. It's like summer, like making its exit known, sort of how that, uh, how that goes. But the leaves, especially yesterday, man, it's gorgeous here. I'm really, really picturesque. So um, it's just how it works. And if we don't get too much heavy rain, the leaves will stick around for a while, which is fun. Yeah. All right. We have uh, more quick tips queued up than I can shake a stick at. So let's see if we can at least shake a show at them and see what happens. So we'll start with Allie. Allie says a uh, quick tip regarding picture in picture on Mac OS Sierra. Normally, when using this feature, you can only place the video in the four corners of the screen. But if you hold the command key and then drag the video, you can place the video anywhere you like, which is really, really handy. Uh, I will also point out that uh, the screenshots that Apple showed us when they introduced picture in picture show that the YouTube player has a little picture in picture button. I don't get that on my Sierra machines. What I have to do is I have to right click on the video and then right click again on the video. I know it sounds strange, but with the first menu up, right click again, then you'll get a second Sierra menu that uh, that will allow you to do picture in picture. And then you can do this. You can drag it around with the control key. So pretty crazy stuff, but it works. And a, sep a separate hint, I think. I don't think anybody added this to the show. Anyway, um, you can now drag third-party menu items around with the command key. It used to be that you could only drag Apple menu items around with the command key and place them where you want. But, uh, but now with Sierra, you can drag third-party menu items around with the command key. So the command key is your friend when wanting to put things where you want. I always think of it as you're in command. So there you go. Right? One would hope. One would hope. It's my computer, man. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of strange that you couldn't do that in, uh, in El Capitan. All right. Uh, moving on to Ken, which I will find here. Ken, I think we have two tips from Ken. The first one says, I keep my iMac running 24-7, but just after upgrading to Mac OS 10.12, when I'm away for an hour or more, it restarts for no reason. Um, actually what he goes through is he went through a bunch of troubleshooting. He says he was wrong. Uh, when I was away, it wasn't restarting. It was logging out and it never happened before Sierra under system preferences in the security and privacy pane under advanced after updating Sierra, it automatically for Ken, at least enabled log out after 30 minutes of inactivity. 
He says, I had no idea if anyone else is having this problem, turn the option off. So thanks, Ken. Good tip. Good stuff. Anything on that one, John, before we... Uh... Oh, nice. Yeah, that is... Uh... Yeah, that's really hidden away, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's been there. Have. It's not new, but uh, but for Ken, anyway, it got checked somewhere during the update process. So Yeah, that's yeah. actually a nice option because actually uh, in one of my past uh, careers, the, there was actually a corporate policy because it was... Uh, there was a corporate policy where uh, you you were not supposed to uh, stay uh, logged in. Yeah, it was actually because you know it was a DOD. Uh, sure, right place, and they had security policies, and one was, and actually you could get in trouble. Uh, of course, the admins would actually uh, if they noticed that you were idle for too long. Uh-huh. So an admin sometimes would actually stop by your desk, and you would get a little nasty gram if you uh, had. Uh, abandon your terminal sure that makes sense no i mean when yeah when when not only is it company policy but when the company has agreed to an even larger policy because of one of the contracts that they're under that yeah that makes sense all right cool moving on to gary another sierra tip i think we've got uh I think, well he's got a bunch of sierra tips he says i upgraded to sierra on my late 2015 imac all went smoothly other then I had to remove ESET Cybersecurity Pro since it said the version I had was unsupported. Uh, but during post-install, I was presented with some screens that may throw some people. So here they are. Number one, password security. After signing into your account and then iCloud, if your passwords for each are the same, you will be forced to change your account password. A screen will come up saying you can no longer have the same password as your iCloud password and the form for making a new password and hint will come up. That's I I like the policy. How are they knowing that, John? Think about that while I while I share his other two tips and we can circle back. Number two, Apple will try to get you to do two step verification. The box for setting this up will be checked by default unless you already have it. Since Apple supports it, I went ahead and did the setup steps. But keep in mind, people will want to read all screens carefully. Yeah, two step verification is different well, there's there's two step and there's two factor, right? And they are not the same. And you need to turn one off before you turn the other on. It gets very, very um, interesting going through that process. I went through it on on my machines here and migrated from two step to two factor. So uh, bear that in mind as as you're as you're going through. Two factor is the new two step, and I don't mean that in terms of dancing. <laughs> but uh, but it uh, it's important to, you know, I, I think there will be things that um, that will that will require two factor authentication is what Apple's calling it. And I can't even bring up the security pane here to uh, to talk about that. But of course, I'm still on El Capitan on the on the podcast machine because Tascam and their drivers and all of that great stuff are not compatible with uh with with Sierra yet and probably won't be for a couple of months. But anyway, yes, two factor authentication is what you want to move to. So uh, and then number three, one could this one could just be due to many people downloading and setting up Sierra. But when I tried to do the iCloud setup, it stuck at setting up an account with the spinning symbol for about a minute. And then a second screen came up saying error in setting up your account with an OK button. I tried three times with no luck. So I clicked the setup later link which is very small below where you would enter your apple id uh and then it worked so other than the other than the issues mentioned above 
all my other applications on my Mac seem to be working very, very smoothly. So thanks for that, Gary. Good stuff. John, so thoughts about this? Like, how do they know that your iCloud password and your account password are the same if they can't reverse decrypt your password, right? Because passwords are stored encrypted or should be by the operating system. So how do it know that your iCloud password and Mac password are the same? Uh, I think typically, yeah, so the passwords uh, are not stored in the clear. They're typically stored as a, you add something called salt and then there's a a hash. But it's a one way path, right? You can't, if you have the, the, the stored hash, you can't decrypt that and get the raw password out of it. Like that's the whole point of, of that. So, right. Well, I think they, at some point they must be comparing the hashes, I guess. So they're using the same salt for iCloud and your local machine password. Isn't that the point? The salt's supposed to be like semi-random and all of that stuff. Right. This seems a little weird to me. Like, how do it know? Yeah, I have to have to look into that. Yeah, yeah. I think you're I mean, right. it would have to be. Should be the salt should be different, but it can't be right if they're if they're doing it this way. So that's just interesting. Um, because they would have to compare the hashes. That I mean, which is how it knows. Maybe what it does is it takes what. So when you here here's my theory. Um, when you log in to your Mac normally, forget about the the comparison of of two passwords. But when you log into your Mac and you type your password, what it does is it takes what you typed and adds the salt to it and hashes it essentially runs it through the same equation that it used to store your password initially. And if the result of the equation of what you typed is the same as what's stored, it lets you in. It says, ah, must be the same password. So it never compares in the clear. There's nothing stopping the OS from taking what you typed in and running that through your iCloud equation and comparing that. So that would be the secure way to do this and say, oh, wait, it matches there too. Even though it's a different equation, must be the same password. You got to change it. So that's that's what it's that's what it's got to be. Because otherwise, Apple would, would get into all sorts of trouble for, for, you know, doing security wrong. And my guess is that they're, especially with this, not going to do it wrong. We can fault them for... Yeah, right. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can we could complain about here, but that's not one of them. So that that's how it has to be. Okay, I feel better now. I'm glad we had that talk. Moving right along, uh, this one's so good that we should bring it up every few months, uh, and it's great when a listener brings it up because it tells us, yes, in fact, it's time. I don't think I added this one to the show, but that's okay. Listener Mark brought up a great command called Mac Error. When you get an error message, and again, we've talked about this before, when you get an error message and you don't know what the number means, often, not always, you can go to the terminal and type Mac error, all one word, space, and the number, and it will tell you what that error means. It will do a quick lookup for you. So handy stuff. Thanks, Mark, for reminding us to include that one. I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a hearty fish shake to anybody or anyone or any entity that uses numeric error codes. I, I hate you all. Yeah. 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 Like it's like the numerics. Okay. But then, then explain it right there. You can invoke Mac error from within your app and, and pull the, the response and just put it there on the screen for the, for the, or even, see. even a double fish shake. This error always infuriates me. 
unknown error. It's like, well, well, wait a second. You know that an error occurred. Why are you then saying you don't know why? You yeah. know, you're just not telling me. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I see unknown error, <laughs> I, I, I can't stand it. Yeah. You know, there was an error. What happened? Talk to me a little more. That's right. All right. Speaking of keychains and all of that, listener Johnny has some great advice for us. He said, uh, I think it's a good idea to check your system keychain or your login keychain, as there are always things to delete old Wi-Fi access passwords, old email accounts. For what it's worth, I only store minimal information in my keychain as anyone who gains access to my account will have access to anything in the keychain. And he's right. Uh, for those of us that use iCloud uh, keychain, there will be a lot of entries in, in here, potentially a lot of, of entries. But it, it's a good idea to go through, especially if you're someone like me that's, you know, upgraded your Mac from version to version to version and everything's gone relatively swimmingly and you're syncing all your passwords and all that. Uh, but, it you know, probably the kind of thing that would take you maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes to just scroll through. And delete anything that you just know you don't need anymore. Not uh, not a bad idea to clean things up. And and the same would be true of your password managers. One uh, password or last pass or whatever it is you use. Go through those too every now and then and, and clean things up. I wish that Apple would store, or or any password manager for that matter, would store the last time used. So And maybe they do, and maybe I'm just missing this. So that you could go in and say, show me the places I haven't logged into in, you know, over a year. And then it filters out all the ones that you use regularly. And it's like, all right, great. Here's these. Do I still want some of these? Well, some you might, some you don't want. And well, actually, them, go ahead. Actually, they do. So I'm looking right now. So at least for passwords. So yep. uh, first off, how do you look at this stuff here? The, the program is called Keychain Access. And when you run that, so if you click on then... And then on the left, you're going to see two choices. One is is the keychain, and you may have one or more. Well, you almost certainly will have more. Sure. Login, local items, system, and system routes, I think, are, are standard. I've created one called email, where I put my email certificates. Yep. And I think you do the same thing, Dave, I do. Just, just to be neat and tidy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you click on the passwords category, it'll act, there actually is a column saying date modified. And, well, date uh, modified is different from date used like i want to know the last time i logged into a website and along those lines i want to know the last time i used an app on ios right it would be really handy because i load a lot of crap on my phone i think a lot of us do i'm not going to say we all do but certainly a lot of us i would love for it to like you know when you update an app it puts the little dot next to the uh, application name until you launch it the first time so that you know you're launching a, an updated version of the app I would love to have that indicator for apps I haven't launched in a long time so that I could know to delete them. It would be very, very handy. But, um, but no, yeah. I don't. I guess the thing option. to mention, though, because we have uh, uh, we've both helped people who had password issues in the past, Dave. And mm -hmm. one cause of that, and this is actually, if anybody at Apple is listening, uh, here's a little suggestion. It'd be nice if there was a keychain cleanup utility because i'm even looking right now and i have multiple entries for many things right i mean here i'm looking right now and i sure. have uh yoru which is my uh, uh twitter client i have three entries for the same program yep with with slightly different date modifieds and and i think a lot of times when people are having 
password problems and they're like, no, I know I typed in the right password or I thought I did in the past. Right. Uh, the cause of this a lot of times is because there's multiple entries in the keychain, And yep. I, I, I don't know why they allow that. Because to me, I, I, I can't imagine why you would need multiple entries for the same entity. Well, I mean, for a you Twitter know? app, actually, there's a good argument, right? Because you're going to have one entry for each account that you log into. But yeah. if it's the same account, no, I get it. And this is why Johnny's tip is, oh, is good, right? This actually, is, I'm sorry. You just made a very good point because I'm looking here. And uh, now that I realize it, I have, ah, you're right. Okay. So I'm looking here. I see the token and then the account is different. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But still, but sometimes this is, this is a good same. reason to go through. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know what you're talking about. I've seen it where it's the same. All right. Uh, a, a slightly more esoteric, but. Nonetheless, a good tip instead. He said, um, uh, there's a big story from Andy, but he was having a problem uh, with iOS where he uh, it, he couldn't, let's see, uh, he started to get insecure server messages in Safari and also seeing Apple ID verification messages. And Andy went through all kinds of troubleshooting to figure this out until he realized my son has been changing the time and date on his iPhone in order to cheat games where you have to wait for a specific time to pass in order to get more coins or do something in the game. Hey, it's a hack, right? I, I, I fully support this mindset, right? Thinking about how can you beat the system? How can you work around the box? Right. But you got caught. That's the problem. And, and getting caught in this one caused all these errors. And, and that was the issue. If you set your time to the future or too far in the past, it will start mucking about with things that rely on the time being accurate, or at least within the realm of possibilities. So yes, very good stuff. Good advice, Andy. Make sure if you're running into, especially security certificate issues, that might be solved by having the time correct. And it could be not your fault, right? It could be that, you know, the battery in your Mac has died and it can't sync with the time server or whatever any of that is. So check on that. Yeah. Um, We've seen, actually, you know, this had come up in the past with some Apple OS installers in that the certificate had an expiration date. And all of a sudden, yeah, old installers said, I, I, I'm not going to work anymore no because go. I... Uh, my certificate has expired and, and that's a bad thing. So one way to solve that. And I think, yeah, the articles talking about this one way to solve that would be to either set your clock back and kind of right. cheat the system right? or download a new one. And they eventually, you know, came out with ones that have newer certificates. Sure. But, um, yeah. I don't know. I feel ethically about, you know, setting the time back there. Dude, he's playing a game game. In the, th yeah. But, come on. but the I whole mean, point of the game is to figure out the system and, and beat it. Yeah, like, but th there's ethics. I mean, you, you gotta. I, I'd like to have a level playing field. You know, there's like people like you know with Pokemon Go, there, you know, there's cheats you can oh, get yeah. that you know change your GPS location to make it look like you're running around when you're actually just sitting there doing nothing. Yeah, except playing the game. Right. <laughs> I can't support that sort of thing. Oh yeah, no, it's great. It's, or the uh, other day, I, I I was playing. So I play uh, uh, Team Fortress Two, and there was someone. I'm almost certain. No, they were definitely cheating because the thing was, I would show up. And as soon as I became visible to this one other type of character called a sniper, I would immediately get shot. Like there wasn't even a delay. And I'm like, okay, either this guy's really good or he's got to cheat. Sure. And yeah. the thing is, everybody else in the game eventually booted him because they're like, dude, you're cheating. You're you cheating. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. In a game like that, I mean, well, and that's the thing is, is the, the social 
uh, environment tends to deal with that fairly quickly and fairly swiftly. So that's good. But if you're just playing a game on your own, who cares? Just, you know, you want to get more coins to like play more for, I don't mm-hmm. know, pinball or something. Just, who cares? Um, all right. This is one of my favorite ones. Um, so to print an email or web page in iOS to a PDF, you can go and, and the, the tip comes from uh, listener, John, uh, you can go and with, so let me walk through this because it gets a little weird and I want to make sure I get this right for you. So there's two ways to do it. And I didn't know about the second way. The first way is you, and this has to be from something that you can print. So in an email or a web page, you choose the, in an email, it's weird. You choose the reply icon and then you say print. And when you're on the screen that shows the page or pages that are going to be printed, if you force touch on those all the way, you got to force push, not just force tap or whatever it is. Uh, then it will bring up a preview, essentially like a print preview, full screen. And at the bottom of that, you have a share icon where you can share it to whatever service you want, iCloud Drive or Dropbox or you know Evernote or, or even mail it to someone. And it will mail or save it as a PDF. But if you don't have... What is it? I forget, John. Is it 3D touch or force touch on the on the phone versus the watch? I forget what it's called. It's the same freaking motion. But if you don't have that, like you've got an SE or an iPhone 6 or, or 6 Plus, and you don't have the 6S or the 7, you can still do this by pinch to zoom, which is, in my opinion, a reverse pinch. So put your fingers in the middle and zoom it out and it will do exactly the same thing. And then you get to that share uh, that uh, that page with the share icon and you can do it. Thank you so much to listener John for pointing that out because I thought when I was using my SE with the iOS 10 betas that there was no way that I was going to be able to, uh, to do that on there. And sure enough, no problem. Works great. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's not force touch, it's 3D touch. Thank you, Brian Monroe. And it's 3D touch everywhere now. All right, that's good. All right, see, we all learned something new. So thanks to Brian Monroe in the chat room at macgeekgab.com slash stream for that. And you're always all welcome to join us there if you like. All right, a tip from listener Ken. Ken writes, After updating to iOS 10 and watchOS 3, I didn't like the emergency SOS slider showing up when I wanted to turn off my watch. My fingers are clumsy. So once I accidentally called 911, I chatted with Apple support and they offered me a solution. In regards to your question about completely disabling the emergency SOS feature on your Apple watch, the feature cannot be completely disabled, but you have already turned off the hold option and removed your SOS contacts in your specific situation. I would recommend making sure medical ID is enabled. This will give you additional space between the power off button and the emergency SOS button as medical ID will appear in the middle. You can turn on medical ID by going in your iPhone uh, to health app medical ID. Uh, And here you can create or edit your medical ID and turn on the show when locked option to make it appear on the Apple watch. So interesting, uh, interesting workaround for that, just to keep you from fat fingering the, uh, the, the emergency SOS button. So it's good stuff. I, I'm curious why you're turning your Apple watch off all the time. That that's, um, that's more my question about that, but perhaps we'll get to that another time. 
Anything, uh, anything on that one, John, before I move on? There's two about the watch here that I've got. Nope, I have, I have not yet accidentally called 911. All right. I remember the last time I've called 911. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I remember. sure that's a story for another time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I can tell you. It was an I'm easy sure one. It was, gonna... a, a, it was a wrong-way driver. Uh, I, was, I was driving oh. on the highway at night, and uh, I noticed some headlights coming towards me, and I'm like, gee, you know what? It looks like they're in my lane. And you know what? They were. Yeah. <laughs> Called 911, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm on... Re-. And they're like, yep, we know. We know. Yeah, we're trying to, trying to find them. Uh, I don't know how you could possibly drive I've the seen wrong it. way on a highway. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, coming home from gigs, I see it. Yeah. All right, moving on to uh, listener Bill, who he uh, says, here's a tip for problems with phone calls on the Apple Watch. Make sure your contacts are syncing properly. In the Apple Watch app on the iPhone, choose general reset and reset sync settings. I was unable to call people back using Siri on the watch, even though they had just called me. Siri said, sorry, Bill, I can't make your call with no explanation. I had also noticed that numbers, but not names appeared on the watch when people called or texted me. When I opened phone contacts on the watch, I was surprised to see that it listed only the contacts that came after my name alphabetically. Resetting the sync settings had all the contacts restored and phone calls working properly in a few minutes. So I ran in. This is a great tip, by the way, because I ran into this during the watch OS three beta. And I didn't talk about it on the show here because beta and, you know, you kind of expect there to be be issues but i noticed two things the first was that for days my battery on the watch was just burning very very quickly and then like bill i noticed when people texted me on the watch i would just get their phone number then on my phone it would show up as their uh their name or you know whatever it should have been based on my contacts so i went on the watch into phone and contacts and saw that only like you know 10 percent of my contacts had synced but for me i didn't think to reset sync settings which is a much better option I just left that page or that screen open on my watch. And by having the watch awake, at least at that point in the beta process, it was enough to pull down. It sort of kept pulling down more and more and more. And finally it got it all in sync and then everything was fine. But I like this option. Uh, So you go into the Apple watch app on the iPhone, go to general reset and reset sync settings. That's a, that's a great one, man. Thank you for, uh, for that. We might write that up into an article for people to, to learn too. Good stuff. Okay, uh, two more quick tips, I think. Yep, one from listener Michelle. And Michelle says, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks on my iPod Classic. I know, I know. Why not my iPhone? Well, not enough space on my iPhone. Plus, sometimes it's just easier to scroll using that wheel on the Classic. I have a smart playlist that syncs up podcasts that I haven't listened to. It's easy. But after an iTunes update, my iPod wouldn't live update. I was constantly having to sync with iTunes to figure out what podcasts I'd listened to and which ones I had yet to finish. I tried rebuilding the playlist. No joy. I reset my iPod. Nope. I checked that podcasts were indeed listed as podcasts. I edited the playlist and made sure that live updating was checked. It was. Then I tried something different. Instead of setting the playlist to match podcasts for all rules, I switched it to match all media for all rules. Then I switched the first rule to genre equals podcast instead of media kind equals podcast. I also changed plays equals less than one instead of zero. I synced the iPod with iTunes again and gave it a try. And now it's back to working. She says, I don't know which of these things that I changed made a difference, but it's all working now. Maybe somebody else might have a similar problem. So thanks, Michelle. That's a good, uh, 
That's a good tip. Yeah. Mucking about when anytime you're having problems with uh, a smart playlist, they don't always match the way you think they're going to. I've, I've experienced this too. Not exactly like Michelle, but where sometimes that smart playlist just doesn't quite match. So maybe try approaching it from a different angle and, and see if that helps. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. One last quick tip, John, that should be there for everyone, but, uh, but maybe not. And now, oh no, there it is. I got it. Uh, listener Dave was troubleshooting a bandwidth issue at a friend's house. He says, and I found an interesting problem that was solved by turning on something called WMM, AKA Wi-Fi multimedia quality of service. The equipment is a time Warner cable modem that we had just activated a Netgear Nighthawk R 7,000 router, various endpoints, including a MacBook pro Wi-Fi radios in the cable modem are off. The router had been used before with an older cable modem. We were replacing that one because of high error rates and a low number of DOCSIS channels. And he, he's right about this. The the um, WMM is is something that's typically favored by Apple's devices and maybe others. And it's usually on by default in your router. But if you notice, as Dave did, that when you go and hit the option key, to look at more, if you hit the option key and hold, uh, if you hold the option key and click the Wi-Fi menu in your menu bar, you'll get a more detailed listing in that menu. And one of the things you'll see is the transmit rate. And that's the, the speed at which your computer is able to transmit to the router. If that rate is 54 megabits per second on a connection that should be faster, like 802.11n or uh, 802.11ac, it's possible that that the router has WMM turned off and everything is, is slowed down. There are other things that will cause that too. Distance is one of them or interference. If there's, you know, if you're very far away, it might slow down to that speed. Uh, the other thing that can cause that is if you are using WEP security, WEP that maxes out at 54 megabits to intentionally punish you for using bad security. It's actually written. No, it's true. It's written into no, the, the spec. Or it's like the, the speed shall not exceed 54 megabits if you're using WEP. And that's that's so that the user will notice like something's wrong. Ah, I see. And now OS 10 will and iOS 10. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Mac OS Sierra and iOS 10 will tell you, hey, whoa, this this network's using bad security. You should you know, you should step that up. So WMM, it's one of those hidden settings. Most routers uh, have a setting for it. All of them support it. But uh, but yeah, it's good stuff. All right, so that's the quick tips, but now we've got some tips um, from recent episodes, including some from last week's episode 625. So if you're ready, John, I'll just roll us right into those. Good? I'm ready, Freddie. Yeah, okay. All right. It's a crazy little thing called Mac Geek Cab we do here. Uh, Eddie writes, I just wanted to add a little info on your topic of charging lithium-ion batteries. As a rule of thumb... You can charge a lithium-ion battery at a rate at at up to a 1C rate, where C equals the current of the charge based on battery capacity. So, a 2,000 milliamp-hour battery can safely be charged at 2 amps without hurting the lifespan of the battery. Heat is definitely the enemy, and sub-freezing cold as well. What I don't know is what charging algorithm is built into the device. Uh, I'm sure it limits the amps to a safe level as well as provides a charging peak detection to keep it from overcharging. 
There are newer batteries that claim a 2C charging rate without a penalty, but I haven't tested any of these. I'm sure you will be probably getting many similar letters from drone flyers out there. And you're right, Eddie. Yeah, we heard it's the drone flyers that know all about how quickly a battery can charge uh, far more than smartphone users. So that's really interesting. And that starts to explain why um, the iPhone can charge faster than uh, one amp, but not quite two amps unless the battery in the, the larger, the battery, the faster it can charge. It makes absolutely total sense. Uh, now that you explain it that way. So thank you for taking the time to, to explain it for us, Eddie. Also in Paul in uh, 625, Paul had uh, this to say about our segment talking about creating a clickable file where a listener was asking to do that. And Paul says being a domain admin on windows, uh, sorry, being a windows domain admin on a Mac uh, isn't as hard as you may think. It's actually quite easy. What isn't easy is remembering what system you are on and what keyboard shortcuts to use. It's true that Windows still does use drive letters to map a network share, but you can also map a network location using a UNC path, i.e. Uh, backslash backslash server name backslash share name to avoid using drive letters. The reason they still use drive letters is for backwards compatibility, as some Windows applications do not understand UNC paths. Anyway, in Windows, you can create a shortcut to a file on your desktop from the network location when you double click on it. It opens. I believe this is what the user meant by a clickable file. Uh, on the Mac, you would just create an alias to the file and put it on your desktop. So that's uh, that's the best way to get there. Thank you for that, Paul. And then oh, for the same topic, uh, listener Adam perhaps has an even simpler solution. He says uh, in Mac Geek 625, an interlocutor asked about copying the Windows path to a file. Pathfinder from Cocotech seems to be able to do this, although I have never needed to use the feature. Right-clicking on a file gives the option to copy path, and Windows is listed among the options. You get this this nice little drop-down that says, uh, uh, once you click copy path, it says Unix, HFS, Windows, terminal, URL, and name. So, uh, and he says he, he did try it, and it, it gives him exactly what he's looking for. So, great stuff. Thank you for, for sharing that, uh, Adam. That's probably the easiest way to, to get there. Okay. Uh, well, the easiest way is to just stop using Windows, man. Well, some people don't have that option, John. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, all right. And then we have, we have one thing left from a previous show, I believe. And that is Giles uh, wrote in and said this. He says, I was listening to Mac Geek 623 where you were talking about GPS data in photos and Dave's realization that a number of his wife's photos weren't geotagged. I have two tips for you on this. Firstly, in iOS 10 within the places album, you will see all the photos that are geotagged on a map. If you know there are more photos from that location and day that are in your photos library, but aren't geotagged, you can still see them within this places album. Go to the location on the map and open up the small number of geotagged images and then select show all in this view. This will show every photo in that particular moment, irrespective of whether or not they were geotagged. This will only work if you've got a mixture of geotagged and non-geotagged images. So the lesson here is make sure you always take at least one photo with an iPhone that's got geolocation enabled. Secondly, if you have to add location data manually, 
As you know, this is possible in the Photos app on the Mac. It's a bit hit and miss, though, and dependent on Apple Maps successfully guessing exactly where you want to drop your pin. I don't think it's possible to move pins as it used to be in Aperture. And John, you may shake your fist at this point. Uh, nor is there a satellite view to pinpoint locations away from roads or towns. The way around this is to find the exact location in Google Maps using satellite view, drop a pin, click the coordinates of the pin, and then copy and paste that into the Photos app on the Mac. Thanks, Giles. That's that's handy stuff. So, yeah, the, really, the trick is just make sure you have geotagging turned on. But uh, but if, like me, you find that you have irreplaceable family memories that don't, you can add it after the fact. No problem. Good stuff, John. Yeah, I got a got a fish shake in there. Yeah, you got a fish shake without like you got a fish shake by by proxy. You didn't have to do anything. <laughs> it was like an advanced acknowledgement of the fish shake that you were going to deliver. I liked it. It was good. Okay. Actually, you know, okay. I, uh, let me add something here. So it yeah. was a question that I, I don't think we ever got to, but um, but I think it's related. So I just want to mention this here. But the 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 question was uh, from someone managing their photo, so it, it's kind of relevant. Sure. John, get to it. All right. Um, the person was saying when I'm in Photoshop, um, all the EXIF data, including time and date and all that, is consistent. But if I export it to the file system, the data is different, especially the creation date. How do I deal with this? And that actually kind of makes sense. If you think about it, the, the, the thing is, sure, if you export a photo from a program, the file system, OS 10 or whatever, is, is doing its job. It's like, well, when was this file created? Well, it was created right when now. you exported it. Yeah, right. The yeah, problem right, is, right. Right. That in all likelihood is not going to be when the photo was created. If you want to change that, there's a dandy little program that I've used in the past and uh, you can check out, but it's called a better finder attributes. I don't know if you've ever messed I've, with this. I know about it, but I've never, I don't, it's, if I've used it, it's been a long time. Yeah. Okay. And, and basically, one of the things that it advertises doing, so uh, you go to publicspace.net is... Uh, yeah, I'll put a link slash, in the show notes. It's all taken care of. Yeah. But this is one of the things that it claims to do. It's like, oh, well, you know, I'll look at your EXIF data and kind of fix things to make it, make it right. Uh, that's one of its purposes because it, it, it's, it's yeah. making the file system do the right thing. Sure. Uh, right. And, and the thing is, the file system is, is doing its job. The thing is, if you export it, you may want the data to reflect so something it'll, different. It'll grab the EXIF data. Oh, I see. Yes. Oh, see? I do see. Oh, so this like automates that whole process. Oh, I like it, John. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, that's you, a good little tip. Because yeah. I've had that problem, too. And uh, as far as I, I mean, you could certainly do this manually by writing a script. Oh, but yeah. uh, Somebody I, already I, did. I would, it's called a say, better finder uh, attributes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And is this, uh, I'm sure you got to throw down some coin for this here. Well, no, let me see. Free trial. And then uh, let's, let's look here. Yeah, there's a buy now link. Store. 15 bucks. So yeah. So if you want your exporter photos to reflect reality or the photos reality, mm. then uh, this looks to be a good choice. I like that. That's a good one. That's not a bad idea. You know, if you're here, cause here, here's, here's what I'm going to lay down for you. If you export your photos as a way to, to back them up, right. It, you know, just to have things out there 
in a non-proprietary format so that they could be read with anything that can see pictures. Uh, having this to just like run at your entire backup isn't a bad idea. Yeah, the EXIF data is in there. And yeah, in theory, something that's going to read it in the future is going to be able to see that EXIF data. But what if that something is you and you just want to look at all the pictures you took in 2015 and and encapsulate those somewhere? How are you going to find that? Or July of 2015, right? How are you going to find that without some other tool to expose the photo's creation or the, you know, the date you took the photo by doing this, it's already there. It's baked into the file date and time. My guess is that date and time is far more important to you than the date you archived it, but perhaps not, you know? So anyway, yeah. And, uh, and there's another one, Sharon or Kiran in the chat room, uh, says a better finder rename. That's the one that I've heard of, but I mean, they're, um, Oh, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess they're both, um, they're both from the same, same vendor and they do different things. So, uh, great stuff. Cool. Oh yeah. yeah. And actually here, yeah, I see on there, uh, uh, if you want to throw out some coin, you can buy both of them for sure. an amazing low price of 1995. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. Cool stuff. All right. Sweet. All right. Um, listener Phil sent in a nice note with some ideas for AirPods alternatives. AirPods are not available to most of us yet, but um, they are not the only game in town for wireless Bluetooth earbuds. And, and I've said it before. I said it back in whatever it was, March, when I first tested the earins, E-A-R-I-N.com. Uh, having wireless Bluetooth Ear or wireless earphones. Bluetooth is sort of the negative part because audio quality isn't all that great with Bluetooth, but having wireless earphones is, uh, I mean, it's, it's sublime. It's a freedom that I never knew how restrictive that cable was, even just a cable going between the two ears, which I've used with other like sport Bluetooth earphones in the past, but just having no cable coming out of e either ear is really a, a, a freeing feeling. So, uh, you don't, and you don't have to spend a ton of money. The earrings are not cheap, right? The earrings that I tested are, uh, I think they're uh, maybe one ninety nine if you hunt around Amazon for them. I think they're otherwise they're like two fifty or something. But uh, listener Phil has a bunch of things. He said so. Um, he's and he's tried out a, a, quite a few. He says, I've been on the search now for six months for truly wireless earphones. Uh, and he said, I started off one uh, with one from Amazon called. Tronify and Tronify is available for the low, low price of $16. So, uh, and I, I'm not convinced that that's stereo though. I think it's just one. Um, but, uh, but you know, there you go. So we'll put that in the show notes. He says, and then, uh, it's a large single earbud that charges via micro USB, but that port also allows you to attach a second bud, albeit with a cable. He says it worked fine. Connectivity was somewhat spotty. If you turned your head and the phone was in the other side pocket across, uh, he said it was nice because it actually had a battery meter up by the Bluetooth symbol on the phone. And a lot of these will do that. Uh, it definitely was the most form fitting in terms of not being seen as it stuck out. It was not the most form fitting because it stuck out quite a bit. This for what I was using it for cutting the grass, etc. It was fine. I didn't start doing searches on Google for truly wireless earbuds, earbuds uh, until more recently. He said they range from, you know, all sorts of all, all over the place. Uh, he says, I found another set on Amazon called Boots. 
And he says, I really love these. So I will put those in the show notes too. And those are a stereo set, 73 bucks. Uh, they come with a little charging case as many, many of these do. And, uh, and he says he likes the quality of them. So, uh, for 73 bucks, you probably not expecting the world, but you're expecting something and it should be there. Uh, he says there's numerous videos on YouTube reviewing them. So I won't bore you with all the good features, although they don't sync across my devices or it can be charged on the go like AirPods. They are less than 50% of the cost, um, and provide great sound, great fit, great battery life. And of course the battery life indicator, he said, I could go on longer, but I think you get the gist. I do get the gist and I encourage you to go and check things out. What, what I did looking for the price of the earrings on Amazon was I typed earin E A R I N into Amazon. And it won't surprise you that dozens of options came up because all of these vendors put earin as a keyword so that people searching for earin will also find their products. And, uh, and I found quite a few again, all over the price range. Um, there's the highly reviewed ones, uh, from Roken R O W K I N called the bit charge. And those aren't, uh, they're not cheap, but they're a little cheaper than apples. They come with a charging case. It's $129 prime and they're available now. Uh, so very interesting to, to see those out there too. And of course we'll put those in the show notes, uh, as well. So lots of options for these, this concept and apples are going to be out, I think within the next couple of weeks here, but they may or may not fit everyone, right? This is not a one size fits everyone. It is a one size and it either fits you or doesn't scenario. And so it's worth checking these out. I will say that, you know, the problem Apple is solving with their W1 chip of the whole pairing process is welcomed because pairing Bluetooth earphones, especially ones that don't really have buttons on them and are sort of on when you take them out of the charging case. It's been a little weird getting the earrings paired, especially as I had to move to a new phone, but it's it's not that bad. Uh, but Apple's solving a problem, an actual problem that exists. But once they're paired with your phone, the AirPods, as far as I understand, are just totally normal Bluetooth earbuds, at least as far as sound quality goes. They've got sensors in them, so they know when you're answering a call and that sort of thing. But um, but but that's that's you know that's how it goes. Um, in terms of calling, uh, sort of changing the subject a little bit, I am ecstatic with the Plantronics. Um, I've got a Bluetooth headset, the uh, Plantronics 5200, the Voyager 5200. You know, I always, I've had this for a little while and I've used it occasionally, but uh, in my office for phone calls, I have a wired headset. Well, when I got the iPhone 7 and I got my first phone call in the office, it was like, oh, I can't plug my headset in because the adapter is over at the house. So I pulled the uh, Plantronics headset, the, the Voyager 5200 that I usually just keep in my travel bag. And now I keep it on my desk. It's got a little charging case that it sits on. It's always paired to my phone. It can also be paired to my computer for Skype calls. Uh, the cool part is when my phone rings, I grab the headset and I put it on my ear and it answers. It knows immediately. And I've set it that way. You can set it not to auto answer, but I've set it to auto answer. The sound quality has been great. Uh, people hear me very well. And I can walk around my office without having to have my phone in my pocket or a cable. Uh, it's very comfortable to wear. It comes with different size ear pieces and all of that stuff. So I've been really, really blown away with the, the Voyager 5200 and uh, quite happy 
to to have it around to use. So uh, it's, even at my desk in the office, it's it's become it's become the way that I take phone calls. And in fact, if I have to, you know, if I want to call family members or whatever on the weekend from the house, I come over here to the office and grab the headset because it's 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 awesome. So highly, highly recommended. And uh, of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too. Any thoughts on this, uh, this, this topic, John? Uh, not this topic. Okay. I have about another, another topic. Right. Let, let me get some more fish shakes in here. <laughs> okay. I, I was actually doing an experiment when we were talking about photos here, and this I find actually kind of infuriating. Sure. So I ran photos, and I took one of my photos, and I dragged it to the desktop. Okay. And then I did a get info on it. The date created and date modified are the date the photo was taken. Now, the other thing that's interesting Wait, how did is you, that the, you dragged it to the desktop, though? I dragged it from photos to the desktop. Okay, so you didn't choose export. You just dragged Correct. it. Okay, okay. And the date created and modified are the date that I took the photo. Sure. Just like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, as it should be. Sure. Now, the other thing that's, that's kind of cool is that uh, the Finder will show you a lot of the uh, metadata uh, under a more info category. So it actually shows... Dimensions, 4032 by 3024, device make, Apple, iPhone 7. Sure. Just kind of neat. The thing is, when I exported the photo, it did what we just described. It's right. like, oh, well, the date created is October 9th. Uh, I'm like, well, kind of, I guess. Yeah, right. It's, it's just weird to me that dragging the photo from photos to the desktop gets it right, but exporting it does not. So does dragging the photo keep the size because exporting you can change some things and you can actually export at a different size than than the photo is natively but if you drag it out you just get the a copy of the native photo from your photo library right mm -hmm. okay okay that appears to be the case yeah so uh yeah it's just kind of weird to me that it again it gets it right if you do it one way but it gets it wrong if you do it another way sure it's like, eh. yeah it's it yeah it's confusing i'm with you man I it's uh yeah it's good, but it's good. We have tools like, you know, a better finder attributes to, to remedy that fix things. to fix it. Yeah. That's well, that's yeah. That's why we like a lot of the things that we like. All right. Um, let's talk about, we've got a couple of Sierra questions or at least one. Oh, we've got a couple of Sierra. Yeah. Anyway, let's Daniel <laughs> help. <laughs> Daniel says, I wondered if any other listeners are having the same issue as me after upgrading to Mac OS Sierra with their network shares. I'm using a six terabyte Western digital, my book hooked up to an Apple airport extreme partitioned into two, one partition for my four terabyte iTunes library, one for a time machine backup. Uh, and, and he talks about all this stuff. Uh, he says, uh, where's the, I want to get to the problem. He says, now, when I boot Mac OS Sierra each and every time, it asks me for my password to mount each partition. He says, I have them saved into my login items so that they would auto mount. And in the past, they have just auto mounted. But now it asks me for my password, except both passwords are filled in by the keychain and both have remember password ticked. Each time I have to click OK, at which point they mount without a problem. All I have to do is click OK. Anyone could do this. I therefore do not understand why I am being asked time over time when I boot my Mac 
uh, when it worked before without user intervention. I've tried removing the passwords from the keychain and resetting the login items to no avail. Do you know if this is intended behavior or if it's something smart, if there is something smart I can do in order to mount these drives silently without user intervention? Daniel, you're not alone. Uh, I experienced the same thing. And in many uh, fits of research, I have discovered that, of course, uh, as, as you may have and many of us have, that this is intended behavior in Sierra. Here's the thing. It's it's misleading. Uh, the dialogue that we see with our credentials filled in, it's a bit of a red herring. The issue is not with our passwords. It has our passwords. It can log in just fine. And it does log in just fine. The And I've tried, I've tested this by having, I have three shares on the same device. So if I log into one and then go to log into the other, I still have to hit OK. Um, and the issue is that as of Sierra, the slash volumes folder where everything is mounted, when you mount a share, what it does is it creates a folder inside volumes with the same name as the share. So if your share drive is called, uh, I don't know, Drobo, it's going to create a folder called Drobo. And then it attaches the network share to that folder. Kind of like we were talking about with drive letters for uh, windows. It needs to attach it somewhere. And so it hangs it there. This is how Unix does things and it's fine. But the problem is that volumes folder as of Sierra is under system integrity protection and can only be modified by a privileged user. And it seems Apple is taking the acceptance of that login dialogue. So when we say, okay, it's taking that as our intent to let it modify the volumes folder. So it has nothing to do with the contents of that window. It's our acceptance of that window is what they're taking as intent to modify the volumes folder. And it's because if it came up and said, are you sure you want to create the folder Drobo inside slash volumes? You'd be like, uh, no, I just want to mount the drive, which to the system is the same thing, but to the general user, uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to confuse people. So instead they put up this login window, which sent all of us on wild goose chases to figure it out. Um, there is a script that I found on stack exchange, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes that mounts shares elsewhere. There's no like rule of law that says you must mount things in the slash volumes folder. In fact, you know, in Unix, you put them wherever you want. And, and oftentimes you do, uh, so they say create a, you know, a folder under your home directory called like mount or in, in Unix parlance MNT, but you could call it whatever you want and then hang things off of there. The problem with that is you have to do this all from the command line. And if you ever go to mount the same share via the finder, it's going to put it off of slash volumes. So you might wind, it's very easy to wind up with a scenario where you've got the same share in two different places and you're not quite sure. And software that relies on it being in one place might not look for it there. It'll look in the other. Uh, so not a perfect solution, but, uh, you know, a solution. So I'll put a, I'll put a link there. This is one of those things I, I'm not convinced was a smart move for Apple. I mean, it, it, if they've given us a way to, decrypt file vault from the command line before we reboot. I feel like we should be able to pre-authenticate mounting of shares. Um, and, and maybe, maybe that's coming. Uh, you know, we've all always used the workaround, uh, you know, I'll use air quotes for that of putting shares 
in aliases to shares and login items, maybe there's a different way that uh, that Apple has in mind. But I sure would like to see it because it, I agree with you. It's a pain in the neck. And control plane, you know, I use control plane and maybe I'm answering the next question here, but uh, to to keep all my shares mounted because network shares will detach when my computer goes to sleep and I want them to come back. Uh, and now when I wake my Mac up, it's like, yep, you got to remount these three shares. Yep. Okay. Control plane can't do it either anymore. So frustrating. Have you run into any of this, John? No, because I typically manually. Okay. Um, for security. I, I prefer not to auto mount. Yeah. Network shares. Yeah. For security's sake. So anytime I do mount one, I, I manually type it in and I want it that way. Sure. But I can understand, you know, especially if you're using, you know, a machine every day, uh, where you'd want to auto mount. I'm also, you know, I was also Time looking- machine auto mounts, by the way. I'll point out happily oh, yeah. in the background. Yeah. So this is totally doable because it's mounting in the same way in the same place. Just, you know. Anyway. Yeah, I see that. You can see that in the console when Time right. Machine is firing up. It's like, oh yeah, you know, let me uh you know, let me let me attach to this. I'm wondering if I was looking here. I don't see this specific command. I'll have to dig a bit more, but I, I'm wondering if you could get around this also by creating an automator workflow or an automator action. People have tried it. I mean, it there. It, this has been in existence since the Sierra betas. So, I mean, we're, you know, many months deep into it. And of course, the people that have had access to the betas are developers and geeks like like us that have been digging pretty hard. So it, it no, I. I don't if I, I I just feel like if there was an automator solution to this, it would have long been been revealed. Um, I, I think. Yeah, I don't because it looks like the item, an item that I saw there in the past doesn't seem to be there anymore because it, we, we've had this question before. People are like, I got a whole you know boatload of these. How, how can I auto mount servers? Right. Right. And it's like, well, you know, automator can do it, but it looks like it yeah, can. But you'll, get the little, you'll get the little windows <clears throat> popping up is the problem. Which is, yeah. yeah. All right. So I may have answered Pierre's question here, but, uh, but let's take a look at it quickly. Anyway, he says um, in a recent episode, pilot Pete alluded to the problem of having shares mounted automatically from a Synology to a Mac mini server after a reboot where Dave promised a solution after a six pack of beers. Uh, what is the solution? Uh, I still haven't gotten my six pack. Uh, how do I ensure that the shares are always mounted? And as I said, you can use control plane. Uh, at controlplaneapp.com. It still works and it's a great piece of software. And I suppose, and you can have it run uh, an Apple script. And of course you can run command line stuff inside an Apple script. So it would be totally possible to institute the solution I proposed in the previous uh, question here, you know, with the, with the, the thing that I found at stack exchange, you could do that and mount it, you know, have it remount inside of uh, your home folder or something like that. But uh, and maybe that's a safer way to do it, because that way, if it's keeping it mounted all the time, you're not going to be tempted to try and mount it manually from the finder and put it in the, you know, quote unquote, wrong place or different place. But yeah, control plane's pretty cool. Um, I, I, you know, there's lots of things you can use it for. It's it's a little wonky, but you set up rules and then it works. So it's good stuff. Anything uh, more on this, John, before we move on? No, I did. There is a connect to servers action. Huh. I'll have to fiddle yeah. with this. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, yeah, it would be nice if if Automator, like if Apple blessed it somehow to to allow it to do that. And maybe they will. Maybe that maybe that's going to be the new you know the new 
path to that. Scott asks, he says, I have a few Macs. I always upgrade to the newest OS. However, I now have two machines which cannot take Sierra. So do you recommend that I upgrade some or none? Will running El Capitan and Sierra cause problems other than user confusion? Uh, and and uh, you and I are in the same boat, Scott. I'm running, uh, well, by choice, this computer here in the studio is running El Capitan still, as I mentioned earlier. But I've got a couple computers at the house that do not run Sierra, at least not without, you know, some crazy hacking or whatever. But certainly not on the supported list for Sierra. Um, and we knew all good things would come to an end. Um, but it really hasn't been an issue. And, and like you said, a little user confusion and, uh, and some frustration at not having the same feature set or the same, you know, uh, last night I was walking my mom through something and I was on my, um, through some mail settings and mail settings have changed. Like just the layout of them has changed dramatically. So bear that in mind. If you're, you know, helping someone do something on one computer versus another, uh, because things do look different. Things are named differently. Things are in different places. Now, you know, SMTP servers are in a different pane than they used to be that kind of thing. But, um, but other than that, which, you know, you categorized as user confusion quite accurately. No, I think I don't, I don't see, I haven't run into any issues running both uh, kind of parallel here at the house. So and you run both, right, John? Uh, so far. Yeah. My, uh, I, I haven't yet upgraded this machine. This machine is still on uh, uh, the prior version, but my uh, MacBook is, is on, uh, you know, cause we got to answer these questions. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to think of my strategy. I, I'm, I'm one, you know, I'm thinking maybe on my mini, I may create a partition and, and run both for a while. The thing sure. is like, I want to run the older OS because not all of our listeners well, are. Why not run it inside of uh like parallel VM. VMware. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a good idea. Yeah. And Brian Monroe in the chat room points out very accurately that iCloud Documents Sync only works on your Sierra Mac. So if you are going to use that iCloud, you know, documents and desktop syncing, uh, be aware that your El Capitan machines will not participate in, in that level of syncing there. So just bear that in mind. That's all. So... <laughs> Yeah, okay, I've, I've gotten most of that stuff turned off just because. Yeah, it's I want to understand a, it more. Yeah, you know, if you, if, I get it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's under the storage category, and you know, so so now if you if you go to about this Mac and then click on the storage tab and then say manage, you get all these uh, tons of options there that sure. weren't there before. Sure, you know, and uh, I see store and iCloud optimized storage, and then I think I've disabled all of them. Right for now, right, right. <laughs> You know, one feature that, uh, you know, it's funny because someone was asking me, oh, um, you know, what are some of the new features? Because it's kind of, it's kind of hard to tell. Sure. Uh, it's not immediately obvious what the new features are in the, in the Sierra. Well, not all of them. Some of them are obvious, but yeah. But the, uh, the one that I like actually is, uh, and, and I tested it out, is the uh, cut and paste. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The universal clipboard. Is, I, is yeah. I went to my Mac, uh, you know, my Sierra Mac did a copy and then I went to my iPhone running iOS 10 and did a paste. And here was the thing. I'm like, well, how is it accomplishing this magic? Then all of a sudden hardware growler on the Mac said, up, oh, I'm making a Bluetooth connection to, uh, to your phone. Just thought you'd like to know. 
Yeah. It, but it was and neat. It is, that it is it Bluetooth paced. only. Jeff and I tested that. And I'm trying to remember. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, 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 you do not need to be on the same Wi-Fi network and you don't need to. A Wi-Fi has nothing to do with it. It is all about, about Bluetooth. And if you don't have Bluetooth enabled on either device, the clipboard will not sync. And one other thing. If it, like it will expire after two minutes, right? So that you don't wind uh-huh. up for, for presumably for privacy concerns. And that's great. Except if you use a clipboard manager, I use keyboard maestro as my clipboard manager, uh, among other things, uh, like stamping show notes or stamping timestamps for our show while we do it live here. Um, keyboard maestro will keep that in its clipboard history. So just be aware that Apple might erase it from the system clipboard, but keyboard maestro keeps it around. Uh, at least current versions are my experience with it. Does. So, yeah, it's good stuff, but I, I agree with you. It's, it's handy and it does it better than any third party utility that I've ever tried. So I cut you off though. Was there, was there more? Oh, no, no. Okay. Uh, just, just a, just the feature I, uh, again, it's not immediately obvious you can do it. No, it's uh, not. It's just there. Yeah. Yeah. Just make sure you have Bluetooth on. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's go to David. David, um, asks, he says, uh, I just found your show a few weeks ago and have become a regular listener. So great. Thank you for, uh, for being a listener and thanks for asking a question, David. He says your deep dive on backups was the first podcast I listened to and it changed my backup strategy for the better. Uh, he says, I am looking for a question. He says, the controversy with Apple and the FBI and San Bernardino case has me thinking about security on my late 2012 iMac. I've been researching FileVault online, and it's there seems to be a divided line on whether or not to use it. It seems half the articles I read say stay away, but the reasons they give to stay away do not have me convinced. This has left me with more questions than answers. What I would like to know is if you and John use FileVault and what your experience have been, what kind of issues have you had and is FileVault for the average user? And does FileVault change the performance of my Mac? He's got all kinds of questions, and they're good questions. Um, I use FileVault on my laptop, and it works great. Um, it, my laptop is a 2011 MacBook Air, so Core 2, or not Core 2 Duo, but dual core uh, machine. Uh, and I have noticed zero difference in performance moving it. Um, today's CPUs, yours included, have hardware encryption baked into the uh to the machine and file vault leverages that. Uh, so it's, you know, in theory, it should provide no performance degradation right after file vault two came out and file vault two being what we're discussing here, the whole disk encryption. Uh, there was file vault one. So be aware if you're doing Google searching about it, whether you're seeing people saying don't use file vault because file vault one was kind of awful. It only encrypted your user folder and it was very, very, there were lots of scenarios where it could it could run into trouble, but File Vault Two is whole disk encryption. That's all that's available in in macOS these days, so uh, nothing to worry about. And Ed Martzak uh, over at Mac Tech did some performance tests when File Vault Two came out, and he actually found that machines running File Vault Two were consistently about a half a percent faster at both read and write operations. Um, it's a slim difference, but he said it was consistent and it, it kind of makes sense in that, you know, in order to do encryption, you've got to start doing some caching just as a nature of that, of that encryption process. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, 
tests like that might show an eek in performance because the system kind of has to stay ahead of things. Um, my only issue with file vault is the one I mentioned before. And it's the reason I don't have it on my desktop machines is I like to manage my machines remotely, even if it's just remotely from the house or remotely from another room and rebooting a machine with file vault takes a few extra steps. Uh, un unless you want to go to the machine and, and type in your password, when you boot up a file vault machine, it asks you for your password to decrypt the drive. That's the only drawback that I've run into. Other than that, I don't know. What what have you found, John? You know, that's not, there is actually, uh, maybe you could, or, or I'm going to search for it now, but there actually is a way to type something in the command line. No, there is. So when you, the just machine to, reboots, you just have to plan ahead. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have to uh, dig that up. Yeah. That's the only drawback. The only other drawback I could see is that, uh, so last I checked, I'm pretty sure the key for file vault is stored uh, on the recovery partition, right? Say that again. The file vault key yes. is stored in the recovery partition. The only downside I could see is that if somehow that gets clobbered, then you may temporarily lose access to your, uh, your data. Right. Just asking about the downsides. I mean, I've never had that happen. I, I think I have read about people having that happen where you know something gets corrupt and then all of a sudden it you know, says, well, that's the wrong password. It's like, well, no, it's not. You can choose or not to let Apple store your key. Yes. Um, and it, it's encrypted on their servers as well with the answers to your security questions. So the answers aren't just a gateway. They are actually part, as I understand it, part of the, the key that was used to encrypt the uh the data on apple servers so without the answers to those questions no one apple included uh can can get that key but it also means if you can't remember the exact answers to those questions well you can't get the key either um i store a copy of my key in one password but of course you need to have a way of accessing one password um, as, as somebody mentioned in a previous show, you know, if you store it on Dropbox, that's great. But if your Dropbox password is in one password, you've got a chicken and egg syndrome. That's not going to be a whole lot fun to crack. So anyway, that's, um, that's where we are with that one. So, uh, thumbs up on file vault, John. Yes. Safe to use. Oh, abs absolutely. Okay. But, you know, as I said, and, and yeah, the other thing is that, you know, you, you make sure you, yeah, either don't forget your password or you save this, uh, you know, using some method here, you know, another is that, you know, it'll give you this, I forget, it's you know, like a 16 character yeah. representation of your key. That's the only downside I could see on it. The upside, of course, and, you know, people have also asked us about this, uh, especially with SSDs is uh, a concern about security with SSDs is that the way SSDs work, um, there's really, unless you use a specific secure erase command. Yeah. The, best strategy moving forward is to enable full disk encryption as soon as possible. So if you do give it to someone else or, or uh, yeah. dispose or of it, yeah. someone can't peek onto the drive and, and pull your data off. Right. Cause if you don't do encryption, that is entirely possible. So, um, so yeah, I would say in general, it's a thumbs up on all, all my machines uh, where I can enable it. I do. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe I should I should look into this auth restart thing. Furby's in the chat room is saying that uh, not all Macs support 
uh, the ability to restart with file vaults decrypting without user intervention. And he said, the way that you test this, and of course, I'll do this on the podcast machine. So if the show ends right now, you'll know why. Um, uh, he says you type FDE setup space supports auth restart. No spaces in, in the last three there. It's just the one space in the command. And mine comes back with true. My, my iMac here in the studio, which is a 2011, 27 inch iMac, I believe. So that, uh, so that way you can know. And then, and then we did put a link in the, in the show notes to the life hacker article that explains how to do it. And you just say, um, you type sudo FDE setup auth restart, and that will remove reboot your uh, Mac immediately without warning. So save your work. But the next time you restart file vault will work as normal unless you type this command in again. So it doesn't seem like there's a way to tell it always support this, which kind of makes sense from a security standpoint, but um, you know, there you go. So, all right. Uh, where are we here? What's uh, what's next, John? Let's see. Let's go to, let's go to Jurgen. I think that's, uh Oh, did I lose John? I think I lost John. Let's see if John comes back. I don't think I lost my, uh Oh, did, did John type the wrong command? <laughs> did he type the wrong one? I bet he rebooted his Mac. I bet he typed, he pasted the wrong one in. All right. We were going to uh, pause the show here while, while John uh, sorts this out. Okay. I think uh, we are back and we're about to go get John. Hopefully. So let's see if we can bring John back in. So well, you, you can typed, guess what happened there? You typed you instead of typing FDE setup uh, supports auth restart, you typed FDE setup auth restart, didn't you? Yep. Yep. All right. <laughs> I love well, the it. good news is I got an SSD in here, so the reboot was really quick. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as soon as I it, yeah, the thing is I did a search on it, and as as you were talking, I, I was like, oh, let me let me see if I support this, and I was like, and then yeah, all of a sudden, you, you didn't I put heard. the supports in front. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's, that's uh, well, fun works, stuff. Works great. Works great. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, and it didn't ask you for a password on reboot, did it? Correct. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, that's good. All right. Uh, one last bit here before we move on for the day it comes from listener Jurgen. Uh, and with everything that's been happening, especially along the East Coast and, uh, and, further south than the United States with the hurricanes this year. Lightning is a thing. Uh, although I don't think this happened to, maybe it did happen to Jurgen there in, in Florida. Uh, Jurgen writes last week, I got caught lightning struck in the neighborhood since all my valuable electronic equipment gets power through several battery backed UPS units with electrical surge protection. I thought it was on the safe side. Boy, was I wrong. The electrical surges came into my house over the cable. Uh, it fried the cable modem and continued its way over the network cables. Three stories in my house with lots of network cable. The result, all of my switches, six of them, are damaged. At least some ports are no longer working properly. Some switches are dead. And uh, one Apple TV is now only available via Wi-Fi since the network port is fried. A second router now has two dead network ports out of four. And my Synology NAS was no longer available on the network. The NAS got me worried because of the data on it. 
Uh, I couldn't find it on the network, but the lights on it were still blinking. Finally, I remembered that it has four network ports and I was only using two of them. So I tried the remaining two and sure enough, those still work. Although there is a bad feeling that the NAS might be damaged in some other way. So I was researching protection for my network cables from an electrical sense, uh, but so far I haven't found anything useful that I would trust with the kind of current lightning can produce. What is your opinion on that subject? Jurgen, you're asking the master. Uh, unfortunately I'm the master here and yeah, as longtime listeners to Mac geek, I will know about uh, 10, maybe 11 years ago. I learned this lesson the hard way twice. We have not only coax, but, uh, ethernet cable buried between the house and the office. So dealing with grounding differences and, and that sort of thing, uh, happened to me several times. And I experienced all of the same things that you did, uh, Electrical surges are far more likely, as it turns out, to impact DC current uh, than the, devices ba- plugged into DC current than they are devices on AC current. And of course, networks, uh, you know, your Ethernet cables and, and coax uh, fall into that category. And then, yeah, things things fry and it sucks. In fact, I just got rid of a switch that I two switches two Netgear switches that had been fried years and years ago. With ports like yours, you know, two of them wouldn't work. A couple of years later, those ports started working again. I'm going to warn you, throw those switches away right now. You're like, since I've replaced those, my network has been far more reliable. And, uh, and so I, I like any of that weirdness that I experienced some of the time is just gone. And uh, so those switches, if switches are relatively inexpensive to replace, I highly recommend just punting and doing it right now. Um, As far as your Synology and your router, uh, you know, those switches are going to suffer long-term damage too. uh, If my experience is, is any indicator that doesn't mean um, it it sucks, frankly, because you don't want to, you know, have to replace your Synology just because the switch that's soldered into it is fried. Um, so I would, I, if I were you, I would keep using it the way that you're using it. And and maybe it'll, it'll last you as long as it needs to. And you'll never even think about this again, except about how to protect yourself. Now, the first thing to do is to take a look at your UPSs because a lot of them have ethernet surge protection. And many of them have coaxial surge protection. In theory, you only need to apply that surge protection in one spot. And that is where that comes into the house. So for me, I apply it where the cable comes in, the coaxial cable comes into the cable modem. And then even though from there, it totally should be safe. The ethernet cable coming from the cable modem to my router also goes through ethernet surge protection. Um, You need to make sure though, that whatever you use for ethernet surge protection is fast enough. A lot of these ethernet surge protectors max out at a hundred megabits per second. And of course these days there's plenty of cable modem connections that go much faster than a hundred megabits a second. So you you might want to make sure you're using one that supports gigabit ethernet. Um, I, I use a combination of things here because with the two buildings, I've got multiple points of entry and, and all of that. So I have to be very particular about how I do it and I can't do it all with my UPSs. So I have purchased a couple of APCs ProtectNet PNET 1GB Ethernet surge protectors and those work very, very well for me. I have had them explode 
Uh, but they're, you know, like whatever, I, don't, I think they're like 20 bucks or something, maybe even less than that now. Um, uh, yeah. 1843 prime on Amazon today. So, uh, you know, having that blow up and, and fry and, re- and just, you know, replacing it with yet another one is a much less expensive alternative, uh, than, than anything else. And I have had them protect, they, they, they sacrifice themselves to protect things down the line and it, it has totally worked for me. So, uh, I stand by those things. They used to make a coaxial version of the same thing, uh, but they don't anymore. It doesn't seem to be available anymore, unfortunately, but there are, there do appear to be alternatives as I was searching around Amazon. I haven't tested any of them, so I can't really recommend them, but, um, I'll, I'll put one in the show notes. That's the T I I two one two that appears to be a coaxial, uh, surge protector that has decent reviews on, on Amazon. So I'll, I'll put that out there, but you know, your mileage, uh, may vary probably not though. So that's the, um, that's my advice is any point of entry. So be it AC power or DC, and you know, that would be your telephone. If you've got an external, you know, landline coming in, highly recommend running that through. You can run that through an ethernet surge protector. You can plug RJ 11 into RJ 45. It works just fine. So uh, those PNET one GBs should work fine for phone. I'm, I'm using them for phone here because I, I share a phone line, one phone line between the house and the office. And anyway, it works just fine. Highly recommend that uh, as well as protecting your, your ethernet. And I'm, like I said, I'm a little overprotective of my, my ethernet, but there's no reason not to be. It's $18 and 43 cents. So, you know, that's cheap insurance as far as I'm concerned. And you do with many of these things. I'm not sure if with that device, but certainly with your UPSs, if you buy them from a name brand vendor, you get insurance often, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of insurance. If the device is that is plugged into it is damaged based on uh, a fault in the, in the UPS. And I have had, uh, I've had checks written to me for things that were, that were fried. Um, so I highly recommend, you know, doing that. John, any thoughts on this before we uh, before we wrap up the show? I am fortunate in that I have never suffered from a lightning strike. So is this like is this like many people with backups? People that haven't needed a backup don't uh, don't do it. Uh, do you have a UPS protecting your no. your valued gear? Nope. Yeah, you you should. You could you know by Tuesday you could like order on Amazon today and it shows up on Tuesday and then you stop thinking about it. I most certainly could. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, been having a pretty, pretty good stretch so far. So, um, <laughs> a couple other things, what I do have though, and actually I have to update the information. Uh, I do actually have, uh, several of my computer uh, pieces of computing equipment covered sure. under my homeowner's insurance. Sure. That is an option with a lot of homeowner policies. Yep. yep. And you want to consider that, uh, if you don't want to get, if you want to be like me and not get a UPS, <laughs> Yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, low tech solution is unplug everything. If you know a storm's a brewing or coming your way, yes, unplug your cable and your phone and you know all the things from the walls. And if uh, I had to do it's that, it's a pain in the neck. Oh yeah, there's no way. Yeah, I would forget something because I even after we suffered our first strike and I like protected everything or so I thought we got another strike and it was like why did it stop working? Oh, I forgot that one. But it's only because I have you know, points of entry into, into the office and into the house and then between the office and the house. So there's four of everything that I have to protect. And I, I missed one in the attic. 
and, yeah. I, and I paid for it twice. I guess the other option you could, you know, get yourself a, I don't Have you thought about getting a lightning rod? So I do, I have, no, the, the problem, well, there's multiple problems, but one potential thing that I am not protected against right now is a ground differential between the office and the house. Um, and, and really the best way to protect against that would be to run fiber optic cable, which would not transmit this right. Um, across the across the thing but people said if you don't want to run fiber optic you could build a lattice that would help diffuse and and i mean i've 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 gotten some great advice um i've taken some of it i didn't build the lattice i haven't done fiber optic um i could i looked into it it's not cheap as as you might imagine but certainly it's not going to pass you know i mean it's it's light so it's not going to pass current across a, a essentially inert cable is inert the right word to use there? I don't know. I know it is the right word to use, and that's... Uh, so no lightning rod. That's not in your future. Well, I mean, I have a... No, I don't have a lightning rod on top of the house, if that's what you're asking. Yes. No. No, the problem isn't isn't that. It's it's lightning hitting, you know, the... I mean, lightning comes from the ground. It doesn't hit from above, even though we like to think of it that way. But it's, you know, it's... Uh. It's the... When the ground gets charged... And the cable between the house and the office gets this charge and sends it in both directions to diffuse it. You know, it sends it to the wrong things. It finds ground, right? That's the problem is it's going from um, it's going through my devices and getting to ground, which is, you know, what it's trying to do and, you know, get back to ground. So there you go. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, check. And if you've got a UPS, um, check it because you it might have coax and ethernet protection built in that you're not using Just please please use that so uh, you're gonna be happy when i uh when you when you when you plug that in it's free if you've already got it well you might need another ethernet cable you will lose one db or so for the the coax protection so if your cable modem is like close to flaky uh, it might but if it's that close to flaky you probably have bigger problems Feedback is the word I have. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address that you can send all of your questions, tips, cool stuff found. I, I feel like we've got a cool stuff found uh, segment coming up again shortly here. So uh, so send us your stuff there, but send us your questions too. Yeah. Well, I got some words for you, and those are feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I think it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. John, unless you are a premium subscriber, then you are premium at MacGeekGab.com, and we do answer those questions first, although we do try to answer everything. We definitely appreciate your support. Uh, anybody that's a premium subscriber, uh, it's it really means a lot to us, especially like a show like this. You know, it just so happened, uh, no sponsors this week. So uh, so it keeps, us, keeps the show flowing, but... Uh, but, you know, it keeps the, the money doesn't. So, uh, and we've got sponsors next week, so it's all good. It just happens sometimes. We don't. Uh, Are you sure? The schedule works. We weren't sponsored by the letters G-E-E-K. <laughs> That's 4335, which we baked into our phone number, John. It's 224-888-G-E-E-K. That's right. Yeah. No, we were sponsored by you folks this week. And thank you for that, really. It's, uh, it means a ton. So if, if you want to learn more about premium, uh, visit us, MacGeekGab.com. And there's ways to sign up there. And if you have any questions about it, we're migrating the system. 
Uh, but everything will migrate over. Uh, it's no problem. We just haven't migrated it from the uh, to the new WordPress thing uh, yet because we want to make sure we get it right. But you can sign up still, and it all gets the money gets to us. It all does the right thing, and we really, really appreciate it. Uh, come visit us on Facebook. Our Facebook group is doing gangbusters. I think we're almost over fifteen hundred members now, John. It's just growing like crazy. Facebook.com slash group slash MacGeekGab or MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook. Either one will get you there, and we would love to see you there. Thank you for all of that. I want to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com, for providing all of the bandwidth that it takes to get the show from us to you. The Podcast Marketplace, our sponsors that do support us regularly and ongoing with uh, renewing campaigns. Gazelle at gazelle.com. Excellent stuff there. Sell off your iPhone. Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. Smile Software or smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. Otherworld Computing at macsales.com. Barebones Software at barebones.com. And Casper, casper.com slash MGG. I hope you have a great week. Uh, I hope your week is manageable. I hope you have fun. I hope you get to do what you want to do. And I hope that you don't get caught. Made up.